Hello, and welcome to the Neurodivergent Leader Podcast. We are your co-hosts, Heather Lynn Wagner and Donna McLaughlin. We believe that everyone deserves access to opportunities for leadership development and personal growth. That is why we are on a mission to destigmatize difference, identify challenges, improve outcomes, and empower neurodivergent talent with the tools to become the authentic leaders they were meant to be. We want to provide a safe space for the open-minded exploration and celebration of neurodiverse minds. We will spotlight the narratives of neurodivergent leaders, advocates, and experts, and share our own stories about educating, raising, and loving neurodivergent children. We will dive deep to reveal the challenges of being neurodivergent in a neurotypical world and discover the power of shifting from a negative viewpoint that focuses on deficits and brokenness to a more compassionate paradigm that promotes strength, acceptance, and access. We will challenge your concepts about leadership and who or what makes a great leader. We will lean into the discovery of who we are and who we aren't so that we can commit to our truth and become the best version of ourselves we can be. By the end of this venture, you will have the tools and actionable steps to activate your own exciting and individualized leadership plan. Whether you're an aspiring leader, entrepreneur, professional, or parent raising future leaders, we will have something for everyone. Thank you for joining us. Let's dive right in. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Neurodivergent Leader. Today, our guest is Christina Stathopoulos, and she's going to share more with us about who she is, but she is a coach, and she's a leader, and she's an entrepreneur, and we're happy to have her here today. So, Christina, how about we start with the question, tell us who you are without telling us what you do. Ooh, challenge accepted. <laughs> well, uh, let's start with, I'm Christina. I am a woman. I am a mother. I am a witch. I am delightfully queer and deliciously neurodivergent. I am power and connection and brilliance and mischief and adventure And I'm also a home beer brewer. How did I do? Amazing. Fascinating. I love that. That was a great, that was a great intro actually. And how does neurodiversity show up in your life? Ooh, how, where do I even start this? (laughs) So it shows up in my life in a very personal way in that, you know, I'm diagnosed obsessive compulsive disorder and I am also autistic. But I think more so where it shows up in my life is it's kind of funny before I received any kind of formal diagnosis, it's like I'd pull neurodivergent people to me. And it was always like a very similar conversation of like, huh, you're the only person that really bothers to try and get me. You're the only person who really bothers to try and understand me. And I always found that interesting because I was like, wow, well, for what it's worth, you're probably the person I've had the easiest time ever relating to. So I don't even think of having it be extra effort. So I guess in like in sharing all that, like what I want you to get out of it is that how it shows up in my life is it's very much like how my brain works. And I think it's at the core of how I connect with people and how I build deep and meaningful relationships for myself. Oh, I love that. 
I know you and I kind of nerded out on that a little bit as you were kind of coming into your understanding of being autistic and my own journey of figuring out where neurodivergence shows up in my life in different ways. But I remember us being like, oh, that's probably why we have our little thing that we have with each other. It's like we speak the same language. So it's super relatable. You know, one of the questions that Donna had come up with to ask you was about what you are doing or what your role is in destigmatizing neurodiversity and neurodivergence. Yeah, well, you know, I think I think that's an ever evolving answer for me because like as I just shared how it's been for almost my entire life is to just not not even relate to it as a significant difference. Like it informs how I connect with people or it informs what someone might need in our relationship. But I don't then go, ooh, I gotta take special care of so-and-so because <laughs> they're autistic or they have ADHD or, or whatever is going on. And I, I think part of why that matters to me is because before I knew what I know now, like I think the first time I ever realized that I was, quote, used, I guess we use the word different, is like probably as young as like five or six when you first start getting report cards. And in the notes section, my teachers would always write, she's exceptionally brilliant, but she's too emotional. She's so, so smart and she's so, so capable if only she could learn how to act and not react to things. And so like immediately, that was like the first time everyone like, oh, so who I am is a problem. And so I think first and foremost, like the role that I want, I desire to play in destigmatizing in destigmatizing difference is like to not relate to what anyone is as a problem. Just like have it be a piece of data that informs them the same way that it's like, oh, you're wearing an orange sweater. Maybe your favorite color is orange. Oh, you're very emotional. Maybe there's something that you need because of how you can or can't, you know, monitor or regulate your emotions. It's just, you know, information, not something to do with or make a problem out of. And I, I love what you're saying, Christina, because I've kind of sat back and listened purposefully so that I could kind of get a feel for, you know, who you are a little bit before I kind of dove in and, and maybe elaborated a little bit to ask you some more questions. But one of the things that I noticed that I really loved was you base your identity in positive adjectives when you describe yourself, which is not something that comes easily for many people. And coming from the type of background and the difficulties that you probably faced and throughout your life, I just think that's an awesome way for you to have spun it and converted what had happened to you and maybe how other people were making you feel about yourself or, you know, years ago. And now how you've kind of leveraged that into your own unique identity that you're really positive about. Can you, can you kind of figure out when that actually happened? When did that change kind of click for you? It's Heather's fault. No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, Joking, not joking, because, you know, kind of going back to that girl that got told you're really, really smart, which is good, but you're emotional, which is bad. I think most of my childhood and then most of my early adult life, like that became capital T truth, right? Like flaunt the good stuff, be brilliant, achieve, get good grades, be a good employee and keep the weirdo shit, (laughs) you know, keep the emotions, how I'm feeling, how my facial expressions don't reflect how I'm feeling. Like that's Mm -hmm. always been the thing that really gets me. Like for years, I'd get feedback of your face is too dead. Your face is too dead and it's off-putting. And I'd be like, it's on my face. I don't know what you want from me. (laughs) But um, like I share all that as a precursor because like I didn't wake up and go, I love myself. (laughs) 
Um, I think where it started for me was, as Heather mentioned, I'm a coach and I met Heather through the coach training program that I did. She was my first coach that I ever had. And, you know, here I was saying that I wanted to do the work to help transform people and make a difference for them. And Heather was a really instrumental mentor and partner in my process of really looking at how much I had othered myself or how much I was shoving the gifts that I have or the things that would actually make me even more capable as a coach, like in the closet and being like, get the frick out of there. <laughs> don't, don't put it in. And so it's been at this point now, like a five-year process in really getting to start with like, Hey, I'm Christina and here's what rocks and not be apologetic for any of the other stuff. And I so appreciate you elaborating on that because I think that's really important for our listeners to hear because I think that's where sometimes we get stuck. I mean, I don't think any human being comes out of the womb and just says, wow, I'm awesome, right? I mean, you know, and if they do, it's not too long before the world beats us down, right? And tells us something different. So figuring out how to leverage that and using coaching and support and, you know, life experience is a great thing. But I, I'm really, I really appreciate the fact that you kind of elaborated on that for us. One of the reasons I, well, there's many reasons I invited you to be a guest here. Um, but one of the things was in another world, I asked you to help me with some of my trauma course stuff. And you shared a story about how trauma came up in your life around starting your business and also being neurodivergent and how those things intersected. And so I'm wondering if you can share a little bit more about that and how that was a part of your journey. Yeah, I mean, I think as I alluded to earlier, when I first decided to become an entrepreneur, I was very much still in that world of put out what is categorized as good and keep in what is categorized as wrong or bad about myself. And immediately where that halted me in the process of growing a business was I like couldn't <laughs> figure out how to connect to clients. And I couldn't figure out how to pull in the people that I really craved to be working with. And I think the reason for that was because I wasn't willing to see traumas that I had been through or, you know, the things that made me different from other people as something to look at and process. I just saw them as like, I, that's just in the way. And I need to like, you know, pull myself up by my bootstraps and forge ahead and push ahead. And as, you know, Heather in particular was someone who was really adamant about standing for me to, you know, go talk to a therapist for the first time in my life to explore, you know, how I worked the way I worked or why I worked the way I worked or what felt true and authentic to me, not just what looked good on paper, or what got me straight A's. What I was uncovering for myself is all these years of thinking like, well, if I look at my traumas, if I look at what's going on for me, it's going to hinder me in some way, or it's going to prove that I don't have what it takes to be an entrepreneur. In actuality, what was available on the other side of that healing work were the gifts that make me the coach that I am now, that make me the leader that I am now, that make me the trainer that I am now. You know, I have the privilege of training new coaches once a month through a coach training organization. And this past weekend, I was actually training with them. And one of the participants had reflected to me that there is an inclusive way with which I speak to people, which to me was, um, it seems so simple, right? Like, duh, why, 
why wouldn't you speak in an inclusive way? But it was such a reflection of how far I've come in my own journey, because the first time I ever stood in front of a room of people and introduced myself as a coach, it was, here's why I'm the best. Here's why you're not going to catch up to where I'm at. And here's, you know, me trying to prove that I know what I'm talking about. Whereas nowadays I walk into a room and it's like, yeah, here's all the ways that I've screwed up, that I get things wrong, that I'm very much a human being in process. And because of all those things, like, here's why I rock at what I do. That is awesome. That level of humility is inspiring, I think, because it's not easy to face those types of feelings because trauma is scary and it's painful and digging it all up is just, you know, opening yourself up to a world of different things that are, you know, the unknowns. And that's what we all try to avoid, right? We like to be very prescriptive in what we're going to allow into our lives because we feel like if we don't, then what happens if this turns into a shit show and now all of a sudden I can't reel it back in, right? I have too many responsibilities or obligations. And so we push it down and we push it away. And I love the fact that you said that by doing that digging, you actually were able to convert it and find all of those gifts and get over that fear to move forward. So that's really awesome. Thank you. And you know, the other thing, if I may just add to that, I think it's also for anyone who's listening to this, like I definitely had a lot of like, but people had it worse than me syndrome. And I think you could use a lot of language for that. Like you might say like, oh, well, she has high executive functioning skills. You know, she's high performing. She's high achieving. She looks normal. You know, yeah. her, uh, the, the ways that she's other are invisible, you know, or you can't see it on a Zoom screen or, or whatever the case may be. And so I had a lot of like, well, I got this far without processing that stuff. So really, how much could it actually be holding me back? Really, like, do I need to go there? And one of the most valuable lessons I learned early on in my journey is that like, you know, trauma, big T, little T, yes, it's about what happened to you or like what you got as a kid. But it's also about what you didn't get. It's about the happy moments that you didn't get to have. And recognizing that and really resonating with that statement was when I was like, I need to heal. (laughs) It's what launched the rest of my, my personal journey. And so I hope that if there's anyone out there that that resonates for them, that it maybe supports you in taking next steps in your own journey. Oh, I love that because it's not just what's happened to you, but also what you didn't get and what you have to grieve that you didn't get, whether that was the unconditional love or the safety or the connection. So yeah, that that's actually sadly beautiful and also the opportunity to look at it from so many different angles. You also said something that really resonated with me. And now at 43, I'm in doing this work and running this neurodivergent leader program that we're we're running this idea that because we have a certain level of ability as neurodivergence that we've made it this far so we must not have to do extra work or maybe I don't deserve the support structures or because I, I I've made it this far and I think that's one of the challenges because of some of the stigma that's gone on in terms of being neurodivergent for all these years. And I know we're kind of coming around the corner right now and as a movement and as a conversation in the neurodiversity space, but what are some of the challenges you see neurodivergent entrepreneurs up against and what are some of your recommendations or solutions to overcome them? 
Well, I think, I think part of it, and we've talked about this offline before Heather, but it's almost like recognizing neurodivergence and creating spaces to be inclusive for neurodivergent people. Like that's what's next for us nowadays. And excuse me, I'm going to use some bad language on purpose here, but like Nowadays, if if I go to like a BNI chapter and I'm like, oh, well, I'm not going to give that guy my business because he's black or, you know, like, oh, well, I would never hire her because she's a woman. Like nowadays, we're like, you can't say that shit and they'd educate you on why not. However, even in groups I'm a part of now, people will say like, oh, well, this dude's crazy. Yeah, he's kind of he's kind of neurotic. You know, his list making is anxiety inducing. Um, like we still allow that kind of language with each other. And I think it's just still the place again, maybe because it is invisible or because a lot of us have learned how to overcompensate or overfunction in response to our neurodivergences or our differences. Like it's still the place where we're allowed to other people. And it's still the place where we're allowed to like have opinions and judgments. So I think for any entrepreneur, like I think the first practice is just catching where you do it. And where you might not even like consciously realize that you're doing it. I know for me, <laughs> I, I tend to do it as like a self-flagellating thing. Like sometimes I still go like, oh, well, I had a different piece of feedback, but it might not be useful to you because this is just how my brain works. And that immediately devalues the contribution that I have. And that's how I'm doing it with myself. So I can only imagine how sometimes I still slip and do the same to other people. And I'm so glad you mentioned that, Christina, because that's exactly what came up as you were speaking about it. I was thinking about all the different times where we apologize. I did it a little while ago when I said I deliberately observed you for a little while before I be right. So I'm trying to explain and validate myself for why I kept quiet for a little while, because that's how my brain works. Right. I like to sit back and take some time before I dive right in. So I do think that not only as neurodivergent people, but also as females, we tend to put ourselves in this situation where we're constantly apologizing, constantly trying to validate ourselves figure out, you know, where we fit in the space so that people accept us and tolerate us and all those types of negative things that go along with it. So I'm really, I'm kind of inspired by having you say that that's the part of the work that really needs to get done is so that we can be in space with people and not look at it as anything other than just a difference of the way somebody processes or a difference in the way somebody um, speaks or whatever, but it's not, I'm up here and you're down here, or I'm, you know, I'm better and you're not, or I'm capable and you're incapable. And that's what I think happens way too much of the time. Yeah. And, you know, I think connected to that kind of speaking to the, like, I'm up here and you're down here. I think Mm -hmm. another thing entrepreneurs in particular need to watch out for, or also like trainers or leaders in positions of power is I find that as things become trendy, people seek how to's and that actually kills relationships with people. As I've been more out loud about my own neurodivergence in my training organization, like I notice I'll get emails that are like, Hey, we have someone with OCD on our team. Can you tell us how to talk to them or how to provide training to them? Like you're the poster child for OCD. Yeah. And it's like, first of all, no, I'm not. My OCD is really fucking weird. And I don't mean to make myself sound special, (laughs) but it's pretty special. But but all jokes aside, like, I think we get so honed in on like, so 
how do I sell coaching services to someone with ADHD? Or how do I handle my autistic employee? Or how this, how that? Versus what I always tell people is like, I'm assuming that you want to know because you want to make a difference for this person and you want to change how it's going. Have you actually just been humble enough to ask them? (laughs) Right, right. Like, hey, Christina, you've mentioned you have OCD. Like, how does that inform the way that you receive training and feedback? You know, are there things we need to put in place so that you get that this is a safe space for you? Like, whatever it is, right? Like, go talk to the person. Don't read a how-to book. Right. Absolutely. Well, I love that because, well, it's twofold, right? It's like creating spaces whereby the needs of that individual, which may or may not be different than a typical set of needs, is included in the space and welcome and we're willing to adapt. And, and that's the whole point of our leadership program is providing adaptive training that includes all the different needs for different types of neurodivergences. But in addition to that, it's like even neurotypicals have different needs than other neurotypicals. So there's then, okay, well, here's the human being and what do you need? And this is why I've been in a couple conversations now where I'm like, I honestly think neurodiversity as a movement in the DEIB, in the diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging space can be the catalyst for all the inclusion, because quite frankly, neurodiversity knows no gender, it knows no, you know, race, it knows no economic, like it it spans every flavor. Not that some of those other things don't either, but, but neurodivergence and specifically can really start to, if we look at just how people see and process the world differently, then all differences kind of become okay from that space. And so then even the neurotypicals benefit from that because like now we're going to get to know you one-to-one and what do you particularly need and what if we could actually have conversations about everyone's needs. It's funny because I think that there's so little conversation about what neurodivergence can actually teach people rather than what can they learn from us. That frustrates me sometimes is because they never really open up their minds to say, how could I learn about something or a different way of thinking about something that might not be what I'm used to doing, but it doesn't make it wrong. Or it doesn't, you know, even if it seems weird or it seems, you know, abnormal, maybe if I just opened up my heart and my mind and tried it. I would be able to see where that person's coming from. And maybe it would work for me. How do I know? You know, and we just don't do that enough. We we just automatically shut things down and say, oh no, that's not the way I would do it. Or that's not the way it's done. Rather than, hey, show me how you do that. I'm interested to know how that works. So my next question for you, Christina, is specifically for coaches. And I know this is kind of, the coaching industry in general is moving more towards this. I know they read like the International Coach Federation redid all the competencies recently. I know you were a huge part of understanding that. And you've tried to explain this to me a little bit more about Mm -hmm. how we're moving more towards embracing and including Mm -hmm. the lived experiences and identity of individuals while also still holding possibility outside maybe the limitations of those identities. So, you know, that's a little bit coachy over here on this side of it, but can you explain what's being done and how do coaches balance those different things? Definitely. Well, I think 
I have it that this is like the baseline for anyone who is doing any kind of work in the realm of inclusivity and understanding people's lived experiences and making spaces where everyone belongs is coaches need to start with having a very clear understanding of their own identity and having ownership of it. Something that I find very interesting, especially among coaches, is whenever they're a part of dominant groups, and when I say dominant groups, I just mean the groups that tend to have the most power or the most privilege. So in this case, it could be neurotypical people. Oftentimes it's white, male, straight, Christian raised of a certain you know economic status, et cetera. But what I notice is oftentimes when coaches are part of majority groups, they like kind of twist it. Like they're like, yeah, I mean, I'm white, but like, I think I had a grandma who immigrated here. Like <laughs> it's, it's looking for like a shield of why they need to be protective about their identity rather than just be like, oh yeah, like I'm white. I am not connected to my ancestry. You know, people of, I'm assuming now we're talking about the United States, but like, you know, my family has lived here with many generations. I learned English and to me, English is the only language in the world, et cetera. And on the flip side, like, as I was saying for myself, part of why I struggled as an entrepreneur is because I didn't own the parts of my identity that took me out of the majority because they made me feel like, oh, that's not as powerful. And so now I enter rooms and I go, hey, I'm queer. I'm neurodivergent. I'm an immigrant's daughter. Like these, these are, (laughs) these are ways that I've lived that inform how I view the world. Because I find when you're willing to just like have that be straight, it invites your client to do the same. And then on the flip side, there's something that you said, Donna, that's so, 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 so important for coaches is it's not, okay, so now that I know these things about your identities, here's how I'm going to provide a difference for you. Here's how I'm going to make a difference for you. But rather, cool, so now that I know these things about your identities, how can I learn from you? How is that going to inform the growth of my coaching style? How can I be moved by you because of the experiences that you have that are outside of the realm of what I know or the experiences that I've had? And I think that's where coaching is making a huge change where, you know, we've said, hey, it's not expertise, it's a partnership. But then we've still kind of let it be an expertise. We've still let it be an hierarchical, I have power or something that you don't have. And I'm here to bestow it upon you for sums of money. Well, and hence the actual definition of the word coach, right? A coach is really a facilitator. The coach is not the top-down manager, you know, they're not the boss, they're not the superior. They're actually a person who is in collaboration and partnership with the other person to try to help each side grow, not one side grow. Like I'm not sitting there coming into partnership with you so that I can help you grow. You're going to help me grow. I'm going to help you grow. And we're both going to learn something together. And at the end of the whole experience, then we're both better off. And if you're not really viewing relationships like that, I think that's part of the problem in education today. Teachers think that they're at the front of the classroom and they're the all-knowing imparters of knowledge and they hold the grades and they hold the power and the kids are supposed to sit there and be compliant and get the grades and do what they're supposed to do. And really they're not thinking about how much if they opened it up and said, what can I learn from you as the students in my classroom, right? How much richer and more enhanced the experience could actually be. So Yeah, I think personally, I'm having that experience myself. I'm working with a client who is dating through an arranged marriage model of dating because of their lineage and their heritage. And I think prior to the level of 
implicit bias work, identity work, anti-racism work, spiritual work. My training is interfaith minister. Like I've spent the last four years really deep in what you're speaking to, which is taking full ownership and responsibility of my identities, but then also getting curious in how to learn. And it's been so interesting and fascinating to navigate this process because I'm so open and I'm so curious and I really value learning about, you know, I think the old version of Heather, who was very much fighting anything that felt like oppression would have maybe come with a bias of like, oh, arranged marriages are all about like giving women away or some ignorant, like uninclusive way of viewing it. And I maybe would have been defensive, but now I'm coming at it with such fascination and such respect for the level of commitment that that takes to just commit right out the gate with all the evidence and all the proof that it's going to work, but really make that kind of commitment yeah, it's just been fascinating. And so I've I, I've done exactly what you're describing, which is bringing that level of curiosity and growth to how I can see the world differently through that process. Yeah, and, and you know, something else I want to say about that, especially for coaches out there, is don't, I don't want to say don't, like this is not an absolute, but as a suggestion, like just because you may have done the work to heal your relationship with some of your identities doesn't mean that your clients have. And I remember experiencing this myself a couple summers ago. Um, Heather and I were actually in this uh, facilitators course together and God bless Heather. She was so patient with me. I, <laughs> I was so stubborn every single week, but finally one week, the topic was around uh, femininity and masculinity. And I was like, this is the best week of the course. Cause I've done so much work to heal my identity as a queer woman, to heal what femininity means for me, what masculinity means for me, my relationship to those things, how I present in those ways. And I was, you know, texting Heather on the side because people were really triggered. You know, they were crying, they were activated, they were upset, they were shut down. And I was like, this is the best week. Why are people? <laughs> Why are people acting this way? And, you know, Heather is still here. She's like, well, Christina, like something I give like a lot of young millennials credit for is like you've healed stuff around gender and sexuality in a way that a lot of people that are older haven't and didn't have the resources to. And at the, at the time, it was a really humbling reflection for me because it's like, oh, right. Like just because I know what is available on the other side of healing that part of myself doesn't mean that everyone I'm speaking to is there yet. And that's not to say that I know more than them, but what it is to say is like, Hey, I can't place my path or my experience on how it's going to go for them. And thinking that it will be linear in the exact same way for them actually limits their process. And it also kills a lot of the intimacy that I can have in my relationship with them. Well, and it's also choice too, because I think that when you come from a different generation, a different background, different implicit biases, different, you know, heritage, all kinds of things that make you, you, if you open yourself up and hear, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to accept it in the end. Like you're not, you might not be comfortable with sexuality and gender um, that's defined in different ways than what you're used to. And so I think that's an important thing to think about too, is not really going out there to prove something or change somebody's mind, but just 
to educate them and make them aware of where you're coming from and then not have the expectation or get the anger tied up in, what do you mean you don't accept me? What do you mean you don't believe in that? What do you mean, right? And I think that's what happens a lot of times is we get in these conflict cycles with people because we're trying to convince them to to come over to our side. And that's really not the purpose. The purpose is just to educate. I had one of those moments on Facebook recently. Which I caught myself like, oh yeah, right, Heather, you're not going to convince anybody in a Facebook post to see things from your context of being right. But, you know, coming back to the neurodivergent community, especially, you know, there's such a range of some people look at their ADHD as a superpower. Some people look at their ADHD as debilitating disability. Some people and the actual adult autistic community are very anti-ABA and there are other people in the autistic community that found value in it or are at least more open to the possibility that there's some value or some need. I've heard people talk about privilege and like, yeah, it'd be great if we could just do away with ABA, but we have parents and children in crisis and sometimes there's some tools that we have to implement. And I think as a community as a whole to speak to what you're saying, Christina, is to remember that some of us have us have done the work, some of us have accepted, some of us have different ranges of experiences, um, and that none of them are wrong. But I think the opportunity is to really stay open and curious. I was talking with Don about this the other day because we're, we're creating a program for parents, and we have our five pillars of leadership and for neurodivergent people, and there's two pillars we think are the critical because self-awareness, I think that's a pillar of any leadership development. You know, there's some fundamental things, accountability, but for us, the authenticity piece and the self-advocacy piece, having both of those as strong pillars for us to understand who we are, understand our identity, our relationship to our identity, radical acceptance of who we are, who we aren't, and relationship to that identity, and then the ability to advocate for who we are and what we need and get the support structures we do. And so I think that it takes a very honest, authentic, inclusive, responsible person to be able to manage all of that. So I feel like you kind of hit all of those in what you were saying too. Okay, the last question we like to ask is what are the things you would like our listeners to take away from this whole conversation? That I rock. (laughs) (laughs) I love you. Christina is awesome. You can find her at hearherroar.net if you want to work with her. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Totally. I'm just kidding. No. um. Coach, you can talk to her too because she's an amazing coach trainer. Yeah, I know. Um, I think like, I think there's a couple of things. I think first of all, embrace your weird, whatever that means. Heather, you had related to as like, oh, some people in this community relate to their neurodivergence as a superpower. Like, even if you never go a day in your life where like, I'm so glad I'm autistic. I'm so glad I have harm obsessions about my grandpa getting hit by a car. Like, you know, like even if you never get there, like embrace the weird anyway, because they're there are ways that you've lived your life that will be so, 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 so crucial to other people getting to transform and connect differently because of you. And the other thing I would love people to get out of this conversation was really something that you said, Donna, that I just want to underscore, which is like, 
don't think that it's your job to provide value all the time or fix people or heal people or know better than them. I think this is true in any industry, in any professional space, any personal space. If you could show up to a conversation and ask, what can this person teach me today? Like what a different, what a different world we would get to live in. So um, those would be my three takeaways that I'm awesome, that your weird is awesome, and that humility and being willing to learn from others is a really cool superpower. So fantastic. I know. I love you. You're the best. Thanks for coming and joining us. Hey, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and a review. To register for an upcoming leadership workshop or to learn more about our one-to-one coaching and development programs, you can visit us at www.neurodivergentleader.com or follow us on Instagram at neurodivergentleader and check for the links in the bio. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.